Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Chang. I'm a member here at Warnell Road Baptist Church. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I would love to meet you after the service. Uh, so glad that you're here with us this morning. You know, part of the challenge of growing up is that you don't know what you don't know, right? Uh, when I was a little boy, I didn't know that if I tried to carry too much at once, too many plates at once, I would inevitably spill it all, right, and cause a big mess. Uh, when I got a little bit older, I didn't know that actually trying out wrestling moves on my little sister could actually hurt her, seriously. Uh, my parents' job then was to instruct me, right? No, son, don't powerbomb your little sister. Right? You could really hurt her. Now, my parents understood that my ignorance uh, in that situation was actually very dangerous, right? My ignorance could cause great pain. In that sense, uh, my ignorance was not sort of a, a neutral issue. No, it, it was a moral issue. I, I had a responsibility uh, with, with how I behaved myself. You know, just saying, but, but I didn't know that that would happen. That, that, that might, have been, might be true, but it wouldn't change the fact of, of the damage that I could cause. You know, these days, there are advocates uh, who are calling us to know the history of our world. Right, the history of racism, of violence, of injustice uh, that has marked this country. Our failure to know these things rightly uh, will perpetuate pain and damage of those events. You know, it's not a, a neutral thing for us to be ignorant of uh, our history. Now, as a history professor, I am a big believer in the importance of history. And yet at the same time, I also recognize that things aren't always as clear and simple as some people make, it, make them out to be. You know, history can often be messy and complicated. We shouldn't be surprised that a right knowledge of the facts is, is harder to obtain than simply reading, you know, a, a Twitter thread or, or scanning the latest headlines. You know, we need faithful teachers. We need careful study. We need good sources. And all the while, we recognize that there is a lot at stake. Right? Knowledge is not neutral. It's a moral issue. To know things wrongly is a moral issue. To know things rightly is good. Believing wrongly or falsely will have consequences. And nowhere is this more true than when it comes to our belief about God. Our belief about God is one of the most fundamental things about us. Everything you do, everything you believe, everything that you are, connects back to this one thing. Right? As one pastor said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Knowing God, not just, not just knowing about him, but knowing him truly, this is the most important thing about us. 
And like everything else, this is a moral issue. It's not neutral. It's not indifferent. No, to know God rightly or wrongly will inevitably lead either to blessing or to curse. When it comes to our lack of common sense, we have our parents to teach us. When it comes to dealing with our ignorance of history, we can read books, we have teachers, we can research. But when it comes to God, how do we know whether we know him rightly, truly? Well, friends, with so much at stake, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, page 226 in the blue pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, we are continuing in, the, in an occasional series through the book of 1 Samuel. We left off with the God of the universe hearing the prayer of a, a miserable, barren wife and providing her, Hannah, with a son, Samuel. You know, Hannah thought that God was distant and powerless. But now Hannah has come to know God for, for who he truly is. He is near. He hears her. He is gracious. He is powerful. And in gratitude and joy, Hannah does the unthinkable. She fulfills her vows and she devotes her only son, Samuel, to the work of the temple. And, and we leave off with Hannah and her husband, Elkanah, leaving Samuel in the care of Eli, the high priest. And, and heading back to their home in Ephraim, singing all the way, singing praises to God for his faithfulness. And so this morning we pick up in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. If you're taking notes, I have three points to help us walk through this passage. Uh, point number one, ignorance leads to wickedness. Ignorance leads to wickedness. Point number two, wickedness leads to judgment. Wickedness leads to judgment. But number three, but God speaks through his faithful prophet. But God speaks. He reveals himself through his faithful prophet. Part of the challenge of life is we don't know what we don't know, but I pray this morning that God would begin to expose what we don't know, right? expose our ignorance of him and reveal himself to us by his word. All right. So number one, ignorance leads to wickedness. Let me read first Samuel two, beginning in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. He will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, No. You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it for him each year 
when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor, with the Lord and also with man. Well, we see here that the story shifts from Hannah now to Eli's sons. Eli was the high priest in that day. And back then, the priesthood was hereditary. It stayed within the family. And so these sons of his also served as priests under Eli, the high priest. And they were destined to one day take up the mantle. You know, priests in those days uh, were, were mediators. That's the whole idea of having a priest. You stand between God and the people, and you mediate the knowledge of God to the people. And you represent the people back to God. And yet here we see in verse 12, kind of the most damning statement about them. They did not know the Lord. Can you imagine these men who did not know the Lord serving as priests? It's like a painter, a colorblind painter trying to teach people how to paint, right? It's like worms instructing angels about the glories of God. Now, God forbid that anyone of us would ever be called to represent God and yet do not know him. And because they did not know the Lord, they were worthless men, we see here. We see their worthlessness in verses 13 to 17. The people of Israel, Israel brought their sacrifices to Shiloh, just as God commanded them, as part of their annual offering to, to atone for their sins, to offer their thanksgivings to God. But the sons of Eli sent their lackeys who forced their way in and, and took their favorite parts, all, all the fatty parts for themselves. Amen? All the fatty parts. Rather than letting these people offer their best to God, these priests would come in and take it for themselves and enrich themselves on the people's sacrifices. And not only were these priests gluttonous and greedy, but we see in verse 22 that they were also fornicators. They were sexually immoral. They used their positions of authority to take advantage of the women serving at the temple. I don't know if it strikes you reading this passage, but it strikes me that the Bible is not some ancient world, some weird foreign country. It's our world, right? It's our country. 
Uh, we live in a world where we hear of sexual scandals and financial scandals among the leaders of our day, even leaders in the church. Well, know that the Bible is not silent about these matters. Uh, God calls this out as evil, as worthless. The Bible does not whitewash these things. It does not minimize them. No, it condemns them. These things are worthless. They are wicked. And even more damning, the Bible is so clear that such leaders do not know the Lord. They may bear the name of God. They may serve in institutions that bear the name of God. But in fact, leaders who behave this way do not know God. They do not know him as they ought. Anyone who would use their position of authority to mistreat or to take advantage of those under them do not know God as they ought, period. The Bible is really clear about that. Well, the sons of Eli are not the only worthless ones. Clearly, Eli is ineffectual as a father. We see in verse 22 that the people are complaining to Eli. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. But at this point, he's an old man. You know, he should be retired. Uh, his sons are adults. You know, we see in verses 23 to 25 that he tries to reason with his boys. Boys, why do you do such things? This is not good. Notice he, he doesn't even go and verify for himself whether what he's hearing is true or not. He, he just goes off of what he's heard. He doesn't even go investigate. It's almost as if, you know, if nobody really complained, he really wouldn't care what was going on. In other words, Eli is basically an empty uniform. He wears the uniform of a high priest. He's not really there. He's happy for things just to carry on and for the status quo to continue. In verse 25, though, he says something pretty profound, maybe about as serious as he gets. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? You know, it's, it's one thing to offend your neighbor. Perhaps you can turn to God for forgiveness and God can, can mediate for you through one of his priests. But, but in this case, his boys are the priests. And they are sinning against God. So who can mediate for them? Well, his sons still refuse to listen. You know, Israel's religious life is in bad shape. Uh, the priests are corrupt. The high priest is ineffectual. And yet amid all of this darkness, there is a surprising glimmer of light. We see here the contrast between Eli and his sons and little Samuel, right? Right in the middle of this passage. Uh, while the house of Eli is fattening themselves up from the priesthood, here's young Samuel with nothing except the clothes that his mother brings him year after year. While the sons of Eli abuse their authority, here's young Samuel quietly serving, humbly serving at the temple. While Eli and his sons are incurring God's wrath and the people's anger, here's Little Samuel, growing in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. 
You know, Samuel here is just a little boy. He, he's a little servant in the temple. He's got no power. He's got no authority. You know, if the world was, was to paint a picture of what was going on here in Israel, they would paint, you know, Eli and his sons at the foreground with their robes and their glory doing what they do. Samuel would be probably just like in the background. Just you can barely see him. But if God were to paint this passage, Samuel's right in the middle. You notice how you get the sons of Eli, and then you get Samuel, and then you get Eli, the ineffectual father. I mean, God is highlighting for us Samuel in the midst of all that's going wrong. God paints this passage with Samuel right up front, faithfully serving. And in the background is the corruption of Eli and his sons. God sees Samuel, and God shows favor to him and to Hannah. You know, there's so much for us to consider by way of application here. You know, first we have to think about Eli's sons. We have many here who aspire to pastoral ministry or to missionary work or to some kind of vocational ministry. This passage is a warning to you. It's a warning to all of us. It is easy to go hardened while serving the Lord. You, you know, you, you begin by admiring and dreaming about these positions uh, in the church, in ministry, you know, wishing you could, you could be there. And then when you get there, you realize there's nothing magical about it. Uh, you realize that, that it's, it's work. Uh, it's responsibility. And work in a fallen world is always hard. You know, maybe at first the sons of Eli handled these sacrifices and these ceremonies with reverence and with care. But over time, those things became kind of routine for them. And so, preaching the gospel and preaching God's word and pastoring and attending church meetings and attending prayer meetings and caring for people, all these things can become routine. All these things that you do, these ministries, these people that you serve can end up being obstacles to your own free time and to your own side interests and platforms. And even while your heart grows hard, you tell yourself, well, I'm doing church work, right? I, I'm teaching God's word. Uh, I'm, I have this title. Of course, I must be in a good state spiritually. People are coming along. I must be okay with God. You know, friends, I say this as one who, who has been in pastoral ministry, uh, who now teaches at a seminary. Like, there was a time where I thought, man, it would be so cool to be an officer in the church. And I got, I got called to be a deacon. And I thought, ah, deacon's okay, right? I'd love to be a pastor someday. And then by God's grace, for some mysterious reason, I got, I got called to be a pastor. And I realized, boy, this is really hard work. What a, what a burden it is to be a pastor. And I thought, man, it would be nice to... Um, it'd be so cool if I was a doctor, if I got my PhD. Man, if I had that title, I, man, I, I would be in good shape. And then I got my PhD, I realized, man, I don't know anything. <laughs> and I, while I was a student, I thought, boy, those professors in their robes, they sure are cool. It'd be so cool to be one of them. And then that position by God's strange providence opened up. And I just, as I realized going step after step, now being in that position, I'm realizing there's no magic here. There's no, there's no wonder here that just 
fulfills my soul, right? It's work. It's responsibility. It's all part of this fallen world. There is no magical excitement in ministry or to holding a position or an office in the church that can ultimately fulfill our hearts. The only fulfillment that exists in this world is knowing God and making him known. That's it. God is the only thing that can fulfill our hearts. And that's true if you're a pastor. That's true if you're an accountant. That's true if you're a stay-at-home mom. That's true wherever you are in life. So if, if you aspire to ministry, the most important question to ask then is, do you know God? Do you want to be in ministry because you know him and you have a burning desire to make him known and to speak of him to others? If that's not what fuels your ambition, then, then friend, that's okay. Find something else to do, right? You're not in sin if you don't go into the ministry. Go be a doctor. Go work in the corporate world. Go make as much stinking money as you possibly can and give it to the church and give it to missions. That's a, that would be a wonderful thing. But don't find yourself like the sons of Eli serving the people of God when you actually don't know God because that would be a great curse to the church and to yourself. I think also there's a warning here for existing church leaders and to our deacons and to our elders. A lot of people today are talking about the abuse of authority within the church. Know that God condemns such behavior. And recognize that the way to fight back against bad authority is by cultivating good authority, right? By, by putting yourself under good authority. The sons of Eli refused to listen to their father. Eli refused to exercise good authority. Well, we want to be those who confess our sins and humbly submit to one another. Deacons, even as you lead your ministries, seek the oversight of the elders, right? Elders, even as you lead the church, submit to one another and bring matters before the church. Church, follow the wisdom of your leaders, right? It doesn't mean that we'll always get it right, but good authority is God's kind solution to the abuse of authority, right? The world thinks that the way to fight the abuse of authority is by getting rid of all authority altogether. But no, that just leads to chaos. That just leads to further harm. The way to fight abuse of authority is by working for good authority, God-fearing authority, rooted in the knowledge of God under his righteous authority. And this is important for us as parents, right? Eli's ineffectual parenting is a reminder to us as parents that we must discipline our children. Um, if, if we love them, we will discipline them. We will do all that we can to keep them from the path of destruction, that's going to look different depending on how old they are. You know, Eli could not have spanked his adult sons, but he could have done more than he did. You know, and, and, and we don't need to get into the technical details of all that he should have done. But what's clear is that he failed to discipline his sons because he feared them more than he feared God. And so here, here's the bottom line. Here's the principle. Faithful parenting begins with a right knowledge of God and a right fear of him, even over our kids. 
the best thing you can do for your growth and wisdom as a parent is to read your Bibles, is to grow in your knowledge and fear of God. Rather than being tempted to crave your children's approval or to, to, pursue, your own, to pursue your own dreams and ambitions for them, no, we allow our parenting to be shaped by a knowledge of God and a fear of Him. It's only as we know God that we will be ready to love our children enough to correct them and to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And finally, I think the narrator's account here of young Samuel should be an encouragement to all of us. You know, you, you may not be in ministry. You may not be a, a parent. You, you may feel quite, unsmall and, quite small and unseen. But know this. God sees you, right? Amid all the, the high-powered wheelings and dealings of the world, amid all the stuff that gets all the attention on social media, it is your quiet, humble service that stands out to God. Um, so often it is the unknown, unpraised, quiet, godly lives of Christians in this world that shine brightest in God's eyes. That, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged by comparing yourselves to others who have great opportunities, who are doing seemingly great things. No, like, like Samuel, serve faithfully wherever the Lord has placed you. God sees you and God blesses those who are faithful. And, and whenever we see people serving like this, we should be also be those who encourage them, who, who, who commend them for what they're doing. Well, in verse 25, we see that Eli's sons refuse to hear their father's warnings. They are hardened in their sin. Why? Because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. In other words, they are beyond repentance. They are not being punished because of their rejection of the truth. No, their rejection of the truth is a sign of God's judgment. And so they're headed for destruction. Which brings us to our second point. Wickedness leads to judgment. Look at verse 27. Chapter 2, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out for, before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. 
And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Well, in verse 27, point number two, wickedness leads to judgment. This is what we see here. In verse 27, this man of God comes out of nowhere. Who is he? We don't know. Uh, he, He comes out of nowhere, and we don't hear from him again. And yet, this reminds us the truth, that God will never be left without a witness in this world. And like all prophets, this one will speak the word of the Lord. Before God acts, he always interprets what he is about to do. Why? So that we may know him, so that we may fear him and understand his ways. But will Eli hear God's word? Well, this prophet has come with a prophecy of of judgment. He begins by declaring how gracious God has been to the house of Eli. Not only did God rescue them from slavery in Egypt, not only did God graciously choose Eli's house to serve as his priests, to do those things that were forbidden to the rest of Israel, not only did God provide generously to Eli's house a portion of all the offerings that were given by Israel, but God even promised that the priesthood would remain with the house of Eli forever. So long as this house was faithful, God would not let this dynasty die out. And yet, despite God's lavish grace to them, the the house of Eli is now guilty of scorning God's sacrifices, of fattening themselves up. And so, in verses 30 to 36, we hear God's coming judgment. The day is coming when the whole house is going to be decimated. All who remain are going to weep their eyes out. They're going to grieve their hearts, and the rest are going to die by the sword. And God instead is going to raise up a faithful priesthood in their place. Those who remain are going to beg for food, being utterly destitute, without land, without a place in Israel. And what's the sign to confirm that all this really will happen? Well, Eli's two sons are going to die on the exact same day. Well, just as the prophet foretold, all this comes to pass. All right, in chapter 4, we will see Hophni and Phinehas die on this exact same day. And then later on, uh, in, in Samuel, we see the house of Eli slaughtered under the, the reign of Saul. And then finally, under Solomon, any who remain are totally replaced and are no longer priests in Israel. There's so much here that's striking, but the bottom line is this. Wickedness leads to judgment. Uh, As the poet says, the wheels of justice may turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. The wheels of justice may turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. When justice comes, it's too late. It's certain. It's done. God will one day judge all wickedness from the highest to the lowest. 
If you have sinned, you cannot hide from God's judgment. No matter how religious you are, no matter what titles you hold, no matter what accomplishments you've accomplished, God will not show partiality. Wickedness leads to judgment. You know, God's words in verse 30 are striking, aren't they? God promised that they would be priests forever. Does that mean God is now breaking his promise? No, no. God's covenant promises to be gracious are never unconditional. No, rather, God's covenant faithfulness requires the ongoing faithfulness of the recipient. Right? God's promises in Scripture are never in contradiction to his own character and his own righteousness. God here says, far be it from me to honor the unrighteous, to honor the wicked, to uphold sinners as they abuse their authority. No, far be it from me, God says. That doesn't mean that God is capricious. That doesn't mean that God, you know, just loses his temper. If there's anything that we learn from the Old Testament is that God is extremely patient and yet persistent, unrepentant wickedness will lead to judgment. So, if, if you are relying on God's grace as an excuse for your ongoing unrepentant sin, let, let me just warn you now. Wickedness leads to judgment. So what's our hope in this life? Because if, if God's grace is conditional, then we are all in big trouble, aren't we? Uh, we have all failed to meet God's conditions. Eli's warning to his sons, if someone sins against God, who can intercede for him? Well, as it turns out, every sin is a sin against God. So who can intercede for us? I mean, that is the mystery of the Old Testament. Who can intercede for sinners when we are all sinners? If all of humanity is guilty before God, who can represent us? And friends, this is what the wonder and joy of Christmas is all about. 2,000 years ago, God sent his eternal son who joined himself to our humanity and came down to earth. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. He was born of a virgin, truly God and truly man. And yet he was without sin. Finally, there is one who can be a faithful high priest, a mediator for all of mankind. One who, who fully represents us because he is fully one of us. And yet at the same time, one who is accepted by God, who is loved of the Father. If you've never read the Bible, let me invite you this Christmas season, read the Gospels. Read about the life of Jesus. This, this wonderful life of perfect love and perfect obedience and perfect truth and perfect goodness. The kind of life that we all should have lived. And then shockingly, at the end of his life, Jesus, our great high priest, in love, does what no priest ever did. 
he offers himself as a sacrifice. Right? There on the cross, Jesus dies in the place of sinners, bearing the judgment that they deserved, that we deserved for our sins. You know, unlike the sons of Eli who are, who are out there fattening themselves up on the people's sacrifices, Jesus comes and he offers himself. He gives himself as a sacrifice for sinners. All of the wrath, all of the justice of God against our greed, against our gluttony, against our abuse of authority, against our lust. All of it was poured out on Jesus. And he dies in our place. And yet three days later, having satisfied the wrath of God, God raises him from the dead in victory over sin. And now Jesus reigns in heaven as the one who has conquered sin and conquered death and promises to one day return and to judge this world of sin and set all things right. And yet before that day, he offers mercy. He calls sinners like you, sinners like me, to turn away from our sins and to trust in him. For all who will do so, they will be forgiven of their sins. They will be made new from the inside and they will be reconciled to God. This is God's grace to us in the gospel. Yes, God's promises of grace are conditional. But now in the covenant that Christ has established, the conditions of God's grace are secured by Christ and his perfect obedience in our place. And now we have a high priest who ever lives to intercede for us, whoever lives to represent us before God and to mediate for us. Oh, friend, if you are a sinner, you have a mediator. You have someone to intercede for you. And his name is Jesus. If you are not a Christian here this morning, Hear this. Wickedness leads to judgment. But though you are wicked, there is hope. There is a mediator. And his name is Jesus. And you might be saying, well, how do I know I'm not like Eli's sons, destined for destruction? Well, God has brought you here, hasn't he? And not only that, but if there's any concern arising in your soul, for your soul, for your relationship with God, if there's any conviction of sin at all, even a, a desire to be convicted of sin, that is God's mercy to you. That is God holding out mercy to you that he is still at work in you. If you're realizing now that you don't know God as you should, that is an encouraging sign of God's grace. So don't walk away without doing something about it. Right? Even, even knowing your own ignorance is that good first step. Talk to someone about it. What steps can you take even this week, even after the service, to know the God who has revealed himself to you and to live in light of, of that knowledge? Friends, God overcomes our ignorance by sending faithful prophets who speak his word. And even now, as I declare these things to you, you are hearing God's word to you. Will you listen? And that brings us to our third point. God speaks through his faithful prophet. Look at 1 Samuel 3. 
Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and said, and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and calling as at other times, Samuel. Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two years of everyone who hears of it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Well, chapter 3 begins with this striking summary of Israel's condition. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. You know, all this takes place during the time of the judges. If you've ever read that book, you know that the theme there is that everyone does what is right in their own eyes, right? When the word of the Lord is rare, people are left to their own devices. Chaos reigns. Might makes right. You know, are we surprised when we see that dynamic in our world today? Right? It's no... But it's into this time of confusion and chaos that God will speak. The setting is late at night. The priests have their quarters near the Ark of the Covenant. You know, and Samuel has his place near Eli. Eli is an old man. 
his eyesight is failing him. You know, Samuel's job, it appears, was to assist Eli. You know, it appears that, especially at night, Eli needs help finding his way around. This night, however, someone else calls Samuel into a world where God's word is rare. God speaks. And he calls for a young boy by name, Samuel. But Samuel's confused. He, he thinks it's Eli calling him. You know, this happens three times. Kind of a, a, a charming narrative in many ways. But I think all of this highlights what the narrator says there in verse 7. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. You know, isn't that amazing? God's word, if it's going to come, God has to initiate. God isn't bringing his word to some scholar or to some theologian, somebody who's spent all his life sort of preparing to hear from the Lord. No, same as just a little boy. God takes the initiative and he speaks to him as a gracious gift. And Eli realizes what's going on. You know, perhaps at one point, Eli also heard the voice of God, but that was a long time ago. So Eli tells Samuel, speak for your servant hears. Say that, Samuel. You know, that's always a good prayer, isn't it? It's always a good prayer for us to pray before we open up God's word, before we sit down to hear the preaching of the word. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You know, when, when it comes to hearing God's word, we're not here to dialogue. We're not here to, to edit God's word. We're not here to, to filter it. No, we're here to listen. Our mouths are closed and our ears are open. And in verse 11, God speaks. And what a dreadful message this is. He pronounces this threefold oath that he will surely judge the house of Eli. Verse 12, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken. Verse 13, I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. Verse 14, I swear that their sin will not be atoned for forever. There is no good news here for Eli and his house. There's only judgment. This is, this is young Samuel's first sermon. This is his first message that he ever gets to deliver. This must have been the longest night of Samuel's life. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. It says here. Can you imagine? You've been devoted to serve Eli all your life. Eli had been like a father to you. But now God has pronounced judgment on him. And so Samuel lays there till morning. Morning comes. And as expected, Eli calls him over. Samuel, my son, what is it that God told you? Don't hide it from me. And now Samuel has to make a choice. Is he going to be faithful? Is he going to say exactly what God told him? Or is he going to fudge? Is he going to water it down, sweeten it up a little bit, right? Maybe make, make excuses, say, uh, maybe I heard it wrong. Maybe I need a, a better time to talk about this. Maybe just later. I'll talk about it later, right? Verse 18, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Friends, this is a momentous occasion in Israel's history. 
Because finally, Israel has a faithful, high, a faithful, a faithful priest. Right? One who receives a message from God and who faithfully delivers it for the intended audience. And so for Israel, nothing will ever be the same. Notice, Eli, sadly, is hardened in his sin. He responds in this kind of fatalistic, pseudo-pious way. You know, rather than tearing his clothes, rather than weeping in dust and ashes, rather than like going like thunder after his sons, he just says, yeah, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him, right? This kind of religious platitude. Well, clearly being a faithful preacher of God's word does not guarantee good results, does not guarantee successful results. But that wasn't Samuel's job. Samuel's job wasn't to guarantee a result. His job was to be faithful. The results are up to God. Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And now, just like that, through this little boy, God's word has returned to Israel. God's word is no longer rare. Praise God. God was faithful to fulfill all the words that he spoke through Samuel. He let none of his words fall to the ground. From, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, from east to west, from coast to, to coast, Samuel became known as a faithful prophet of the Lord. The, the chapter concludes with this amazing statement. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh. But, but how does the Lord appear? He appears through Samuel as he faithfully proclaims the word of the Lord. Notice here, God's presence with his people is tied with his word. It's as God's word is faithfully proclaimed that God's presence is manifested among his people. During a time when God's word was rare, God raised up for himself a faithful preacher who faithfully proclaimed his word. Friends, if the world today feels like we're living in the time of the judges when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, if you are discouraged by the state of the church, if you feel dry spiritually, if God feels distant in your own life, then pray that God would raise up faithful men and women who would faithfully speak God's word to you, who would faithfully speak God's word in the world today. As David Helm says, God works through his word in a world gone awry. God works through his word in a world gone awry. You know, I think here is a reminder of, uh, for us that we need to pray for our pastors, don't we? Um, we as a church have recognized gifted men to handle God's word and to teach it to us. Wonderful. That's only the first part of our job to recognize those men. Now, we have to pray for them. We have to pray that our pastors will be faithful in studying God's word, in studying it, in understanding it, and in faithfully communicating it to us rightly. Pray that they would clearly hear from God and be able to bring that message to us week after week. I asked Pastor Mark here, what day of the week does he particularly devote to sermon prep? He said Thursday. All right, so put it on your calendars, Thursdays. We are going to pray for our pastors as they work to bring us God's word.
right? Pray that God would bless us as we hear from, from him through teachers of the word. But more than simply our pastors, we see in 1 Peter 2 that actually every Christian is a royal priesthood, right? If you're a Christian under Christ, our high priest, you are a priest to the world. The solution to all the problems of the world, to all the challenges in our family, in our workplace, in our relationships, is the word of God landing here in this world, revealing God to us, making all the difference as we go out into the world. You know, I pray that we would all walk out of here with a deeper conviction that as priests of God, we need to hear from him. I need to hear from God. I need to know God. I don't want to be content merely to, to know things about God. I want, I want to commune with God. I want to know him personally. I don't want to just hold bread. I want to eat it. Have it, have it come within me and change me and fill me. Every morning when we get up, we want to open our Bibles and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Oh, Lord, please speak. You know, Christians, if you're, if you're a young Christian, you've never, maybe you're new to Christianity, Christians call this having a quiet time. It's kind of a silly name, I think. Uh, but it's just a time that Christians spend every day with the Bible open, reading a portion of the scriptures, praying that God will speak to them, uh, meditating on these things, and then letting that knowledge of God go with them wherever they go. Can you imagine what a difference it would make if you went out into your weeks like, like little Samuels, right? These, these, little, these people who have heard a word from the Lord. And as you go out into your workplace, as you go out into your communities, into your families, what difference would that make in your life if you had a word from the Lord so that when people talked to you, when people asked you how you're doing, when people shared with you their burdens, you had something to say to them from God. Friends, make it uh, a normal part of your life to, to, to be faithful messengers of God's word. I have so much more to say, and yet we're running out of time. <laughs> and my wife is nodding at me. Let me conclude. You know, ignorance leads to wickedness, but God in his kindness has brought you to hear his word. You know, in this word, we see God's warning against sin, that wickedness leads to judgment. And yet in this word, we also hear the good news that God has revealed himself, not only through the prophets, but through Jesus, his son, the greatest prophet of all. You know, the, big, the biggest part of our problem is that we don't know what we don't know. I think one of my biggest lessons, having done doctoral studies, is learning how little I know. And that's a sign of growth when we realize how little we know. I pray that we would all walk away from here convinced. I don't know God as I should. I need to know God more. I need to grow in my knowledge of God because that is what's going to make a difference in my life. I need to hear from God in his word that we would be like Samuel praying every day, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Because really, even if you live to 100, you can always pray that. 
You can always grow in your knowledge of God. And really, for all of eternity, that will be our, our eternal delight, is to know God more and more as he is. Oh, I pray that we would begin and continue on that journey of knowing God, even this week. Let's pray. Let's pray. And even before I lead us in prayer, take a moment now, even to, to respond to God in your own words, uh, based on what you've heard. Our Heavenly Father, we see here in this passage the, the wreckage that results from not knowing you, the sin, the harm, the evil. And yet, Lord, we, we didn't have to turn to this passage. We know, we know that from our own lives, uh, from whenever we are proud, whenever we are ignorant of you. Oh, Lord, so much evil has ensued. Oh, God, be merciful to us. Lord, we, like Samuel, pray that you would speak to us, for, for we are listening. Lord, that we would close our mouths, that we would hear the, the hope of the gospel, and that we would receive it, that we would eat it down into our bones. Oh, Father, help us to go out from here as those who are hungry to know you more. Lord, that we would pursue that. And Lord, that as you reveal yourself to us, Lord, that we would be faithful in communicating who you are, to a dying world around us. We pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.